Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a brand new podcast, Reading for a Change, an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. My name is Drew Dick. I am uh, an acquisitions editor at Moody Publishers, and this is a Moody Publishers podcast. And um, I also am an author. I've written a few books. Uh, basically, during the day, I am uh, wrestling with other people's words. And then when I can steal a little time from my family during the evenings and weekends, I work on my own projects. Um, and so let me begin explaining a little bit about why we're doing this podcast and what it's all about. Basically, we, we, we sat down and thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could talk to our favorite authors, not only about the books they've written, we're certainly going to do that, but also about the books that really impacted them in a deep and meaningful way, things that kind of changed their thinking and the trajectory of their lives. Uh, and so that's the idea behind the podcast. And it's not just going to be like a book club either, even though book clubs are awesome. Uh, it's, it's really, we're going to be looking at books as kind of portals to talk about bigger issues. Uh, like I said, transformation, uh, even cultural issues, ethics, all these kinds of things. So it's going to be fairly wide ranging and I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, before we get into it, let me just introduce myself a little more. I live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest with my wife, Grace, and my three kids. Um, and, and I work from home. I work remotely for Moody Publishers, which is in downtown Chicago and fly out there every couple of months. And I should get something else out of the way right off the bat. I'm Canadian. So I know you've got Canadian jokes. If you want to hit me with them, feel free. I've heard most of them already. I'll warn you. And I probably have ones you haven't heard, but I'm wide open for those as well. I'm really excited to introduce our co-host, um, Hannah Anderson. She is going to be joining us for the first few episodes to kick things off. And actually today, she's going to be our guest. We're going to have other guests on as well. But today, it's just going to be the two of us. We're going to be talking about her book and some related topics. So Hannah, welcome. And instead of me trying to introduce you to our listeners, I thought you will do a much better job. So please tell us about yourself. Well, first, let me say thank you so much um, for the chance to be on this podcast and talk with you, Drew, about oh, books. Books have always been part of my life, but I never thought they would be part of my work. Surprisingly enough, I surrounded myself with books as a child. High school was always reading. I even signed up for classes in college based off of what books I would get to read and what papers I would get to write. I was I that it. much of kind of a word nerd, but it never occurred to me that books and writing would be part of my future. But here I am. Um, I am an author, a speaker. I have written for Moody, uh, three books. Um, Moody was actually, God used in a, a major way to give me a vision that I could even be an author. It, it was huh. really um, a, an amazing thing the way God laid it out. But I've been writing for probably the last eight to 10 years. My um, work tends to focus in the space of spiritual formation. Um, I've written Made for More, Humble Roots, and then my latest book is All That's Good, um, which is kind of a look at how we make choices in life. Um, I am based in Roanoke, Virginia, which is on the southwest corner of Virginia. I want to make this very clear. It's not West Virginia. It's Western <laughs> Virginia. Okay, so what's the I, difference? I'm sorry. Well, I'm a if you're ignorant. from here, 
it, it makes a lot of difference on which side of the border you live on. I see. So no disrespect to anyone who lives in West Virginia, but we are <laughs> from Virginia. So my um, husband was from this area originally, and about seven or eight years ago, we moved back here. And um, he is in ministry, and so we've been working here in um close to where he grew up. It's a, a working class community, um, somewhat rural. Um, and it's really home base for me, um, both to work with him, but also to do the work of writing and occasionally speaking, uh, traveling to speak. My husband's Nathan and we have three kids and they also keep me very busy. And we're <laughs> trying to really just pass along our love of books to them as well. Um, we've had enforced reading time this summer. And as we speak, as we speak, my husband is currently putting together another bookshelf downstairs because you can never have enough bookshelves and bookcases. That's my Amen. opinion. Amen. And I just got to say, I mean, we don't like to play favorites at Moody Publishers, but you are one of our favorite authors for sure. Uh, and part of the reason is because you are just a wordsmith. And, you know, I've been reading your your latest that you mentioned, All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment. And especially as a writer and editor, I really appreciate your way with words, how you weave in personal anecdotes in a compelling, vivid way. And then really effortlessly, I'm sure it's not effortless, but it appears that way when I'm reading it, tie it into the larger themes of the book. So I really appreciate that. Um, now, as far as the topic of the book, I want to ask you a few questions and then we're going to kind of zoom out and talk about the bigger issue of like virtue and character formation. But first I want to focus in a little bit on this latest book because it's just an excellent book and such a needed topic. Um, I love how you open up talking about well, maybe it's in chapter two. Anyway, where you talk about the Garden of Eden and how God, when he made this world, he made it good. He declared it good with no sort of asterisks or caveats or qualifications. His creation was good. And then, of course, we all know the story. Sin enters the picture. Things get messed up. And then in the aftermath of that, we're we're kind of faced with this paradox where, where the world is still good. It's still God's beautiful creation. And yet... We're left with the wreckage of sin and, and the fall, and we have this task to try to discern what is good. And I thought that was just such a helpful way of, of framing the entire issue. My first question for you, though, because I think um, most books, at least nonfiction books, have are partly autobiographical, right? They intersect mm. in some way with the author's experience or life. So I was just curious, what uh, you know, how did you stumble on this project? What made you decide to tackle it? You're absolutely right about, at least in my case, I write books that I need to read. And hmm. so if hmm. readers read my books, they will be peering right into the insecurities and the hurdles of my my own heart. And um, one of the reasons that I felt particularly burdened by this topic, and not just the question of discernment, but in discernment in relationship to goodness, um, was the anxiety and the tension I was feeling living in the digital age. And, and it wasn't just 
the digital age, but particularly the rise of social media um, over the last seven to 10 years. And it, it was just reaching a point in my experience and my engagement with it where I felt like there was this massive pipeline coming directly at me. And I was just being flooded with opinions and information and news stories and articles that may or may not be true. And everyone was telling me what to think And I had no way of knowing what was true anymore. Um, It just felt like to me, I was wading through this massive amount of information with very few markers or guideposts or even um, leaders to say, go this direction or not this way, or this is what is good and you can leave this behind. And so it occurred to me that the need for discernment or this ability to sort through information to make choices about what is good is not a new need. But I think we live in a particular moment in history where if you don't have it, the absence of it will show very, very quickly. And it's almost Mm. as if the stakes are higher simply because we have so much more access to information, to choices, um, to opinions. You know, in the past, we had fairly small, boundaried communities that we lived in. You may go off to university and, and encounter new ideas, or you may leave home and go to the big city, right, from where we are in our rural spaces. But you had a fairly uh, controlled space that you lived in. And you had trusted people that you got advice from. If you Mm -hmm. needed advice about your health, you asked your doctor. If you needed advice about your money, you asked your accountant. Um, If you needed spiritual advice, you asked your pastor. And so in this moment in time, all of that has been flattened. And there is not always clarity about who we can follow. Um, You know, people even will use the label of Christian. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's good or not good. And so I just felt this pressure, this anxiety, this confusion. And I knew um, that if I was experiencing it, it was likely that other people were as well. Oh, yeah. And that's so true. Yeah, we are in a time when we have this glut of information just coming at us 24-7, like you describe in the book. Um, And yet, probably a dearth of wisdom. Mm. Um, and you're right. I mean, and everything's kind of been, what's the word globalized really, right. Where you don't depend on that intimate group of people, uh, or authorities in your life. Uh, but you're looking on the internet or you're Googling things, YouTubing them. (laughs) Um, and that can be very formidable to understand. So I think, yeah, this is such a needed topic to address and I'm glad you addressed it. Now, just for, you know, backing up, how do you define discernment? That's such a good question because one of the things I discovered right away as I was beginning to write and as I would tell people I was writing this book about discernment is that everybody had a different definition of what discernment (laughs) was. You know, for some people, it meant being able to spot what was wrong with something. You have discernment Mm. if you can be really, really critical and negative about everything. Um, For some people, it was you've just withdrawn from the world. So in order to not even have to make choices, you just pull back into safe places. Mm. Um, 
what I found, which was really beautiful, was when the scripture speaks of discernment and you just let the scripture unfold itself, it's talking about the ability to choose between what is good in this life and what is not so that you can move toward goodness. Hmm. And it's kind of the way that Romans 12, 1 and 2 talk about discernment. And and that's the classic passage um, that listeners might know about having our minds transformed, you know, being renewed. Um, we're going to offer up our bodies a living sacrifice. We're going to have our minds transformed for the purpose so that we would be able to discern what is good and perfect, pleasing will of God. So hmm. the goal of discernment, I think maybe that's um, what really changed and was reframed in my mind was that it's not simply to avoid evil. Now that will happen as a result, but the trajectory, the movement is toward goodness. So discernment really can be understood as knowing the difference between what's good and what's bad so that you can move toward goodness and you can live in the goodness that God has created. What are some of the major obstacles that you see that people encounter, though, because I think we all want to be more discerning. We all want to be wiser. Right. Uh, but what are th- some of the things that trip us up? Well, I think for myself, one of the things I recognized in my own spiritual formation was the tendency to rely on shortcuts, um, uh. that I wanted the right answer, um, not necessarily to become the right kind of person who would make the right choice. So there's a difference <laughs> between getting to the right answer and becoming the kind of people who naturally make good decisions. Hmm. And I think a lot of the ways we've handled discernment perhaps have been related toward, well, what's the right thing? Or what is the right answer to this question? And, you know, perhaps in the past shortcuts didn't we didn't always see how they were shortcuts. Um, but like I said earlier, in a, in a more complicated world, those shortcuts are going to really show their limitations really quickly um, because the right answer is not always obvious. And so the question, especially in Scripture, if you look at the book of Proverbs, the question is always, how do we become wise people? How do we become the kind of people who, when we encounter a situation that we've never seen before, we can discern what to do in it because our character has been formed in wisdom, that we um, understand things like truth and justice and purity and loveliness. And those things have become enough part of our lives and our decision-making process that it doesn't matter if we have ever seen this situation before we know we have the resources to go ahead and make a good decision because we've become wise people. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I wonder sometimes too, if, if we pursue discernment nowadays so that we can have the right opinion to err on social media, for instance, right. And uh, look good to, to others. Uh, when of course, if it stops there, at least, I mean, it's important to have the right opinions and to, to say certain things, but if that's where it stops, if it doesn't form your your very character, if from what I'm hearing from you, that's not true discernment. Right, right. Because it's not truly good. And, mm. and I think, again, 
remembering that the goal of discernment is goodness will also help us recognize when we're trying to practice discernment in ways that are wrong. So like you said, it's it's really easy to fall into this kind of habit of discernment or this um, process where we're looking for the right answer for a wrong purpose. You know, we want to be right. We want to win the argument. Right. <laughs> we, we want other people to think we're smart. We want other people to be impressed by us. And that's something that, you know, I see a lot of on social media. And if you reach that point where the goal of your discernment process has a wrong goal, then it can't be discernment. It might look mm. a lot like discernment, but it's something else because the goal of discernment is goodness. The goal of discernment is the character of God. That's great. Yeah. And that, that was my next question. You probably already answered it, but you know, I was going to ask, what's the ultimate goal of developing discernment? And you've said it, goodness uh, and to become a certain kind of person. But, you know, that, that's a great answer. I think that's true uh, scripturally. Now, as a Christian, though, how does that, how does that connect to God? How does mm. it connect to God's purposes? Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, in a very large esoteric way, um, goodness is defined by the character of God. So part mm. of what the Holy Spirit is doing by making us wise people, by transforming us, by making us more in the image of Christ is he is preparing us and, and equipping us to reflect God's nature in the world. So if goodness is defined by God's righteousness and God's love and God's definition of justice and God's definition of truth, then when we begin to walk and live and make choices in those ways, it, it brings us back to the calling of Christians, which is to look like Christ, to display his character, his glory in the world. And I think there's even an apologetic here that as we are moving through our lives, making certain choices that may be different than what our friends and neighbors and relatives are making, there is an opportunity for us to speak the truth about why we would be pursuing goodness, why we would be mm. pursuing truth, why something like um, beauty or justice or purity is important to us. And it brings us back to that kind of eternal standard of what is right and true and good. Yes. No, that's great. And that is going to definitely make an impression on the people around us, uh, believers and non-believers alike. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for this book because it's, like I said, beautifully written, it's powerful and it's important. And I've just found in my own life as I've been reading it, you know, I... I'm amazed. I was t talking to my wife the other day. I'm like, one of the things that surprises me about being an adult, and I'm I'm on the wrong side of 40 now, so I'm definitely an adult, <laughs> is that there are so many things I just don't know what to do in certain situations. Like, okay, how should we handle this behavioral issue with our child? Um, should I, you know, pour myself into this relationship with a friend? Should I, yeah, where do I, where do I invest my time and energy? I mean, so many things call for wisdom. And this book has been very helpful toward that end. So thank you so much for writing it. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about, like I said, I want to zoom out because and talk about character in a more general sense. We have both written on related topics. Um, of course, you've written about humility. 
um, and now discernment. Um, I wrote a book about self-control, which of course is a fruit of the spirit uh, and is a, a, a huge part of co- uh, character development. Uh, and researchers. did I see oh, yeah. that that was going into a second was that going into a second oh, edition? Second yes. It, yeah, it went into a second printing, so I was happy good. about that. I guess my mom bought a lot of copies, so that's good. <laughs> uh, no. So, and, and actually, frankly, I've been a little surprised because it's done pretty well. Uh, and I thought at first, like, listen, self-control isn't like everyone's favorite topic. This is going to be a hard sell. Uh, but I think people just kind of went, oh, yeah, no, I can grow in this area. And mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, there's, well, there's that loved, need, if you will. I love the title. Your oh, future thanks. self will thank you. <laughs> yes, your future self will thank you. And it's got a little dog on the cover that everyone loves that little dog. He's looking longingly at a plate of cookies. And that seems to have resonated with folks. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've both written on, I think, related topics. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk you know, in a broader sense about character. And, and I'll lead off. This is my impression. I may be wrong. I'm projecting, I admit, from my own upbringing in the unique kind of subculture of evangelicalism in which I was raised. Um, but my parents were into like Bill Gothard. I don't know if, if that, uh, if you know that reference. Yes. Um, but yeah. And Bill Gothard back in the day, basic youth Institute, I think it was called very into character development, maybe to a fault, right? It's like the gospel is maybe a little incidental to some of the teachings where we're going to really focus on building character. And then I feel like as, you know, I came of age, a lot of my evangelical friends, a lot of churches, a lot of sermons I heard were kind of down on character or even like talk of virtue formation because it smacked of legalism. They felt like, okay, if you're, if you're, that's just sin management, you know, we don't, you know, it's all just about Jesus and he saved us entirely and there's nothing we can do. And so they got nervous when you started to talk about character. Um, and then I feel like in recent years, there's maybe the pendulum has swung back the other direction where people say, hey, listen, let's not, you know, the church historically for, you know, big swaths of church history was the bastion of virtue formation and development. And if you trace the the history of the kind of the virtue, um, uh, the virtue development movement, if you could call it that, back to Aristotle through Augustine, and then into the church or, you know, into middle ages, um, that's where you learned how to be a virtuous person. That's how you understood what a good life was. And it included being virtuous. And I feel like recently with evangelicals, there's been this rediscovery of virtues and a need to focus on this and become the kind of people um, that reflect the, the values and the fruit of the spirit that we read about in scripture. So that's that's my sense. Have, what's your experience been? I'm wondering how it differs from that. Does any of that resonate? What do you think? Well, I'm probably a peer to you. I'm just at 40. So oh, maybe just a little behind younger you. Than but... me. You're on the right on the cusp of the millennial thing. Right. <laughs> but I do have memories of a similar emphasis on character. Um, I remember things like character counts. Um, ah. the, the, this kind of sense of uh, especially in political leaders, character, there was this um, push for <laughs> yes. upstanding, righteous leaders. That was part of what you were voting for. Um, and I, I remember that, <laughs> um, Bill Bennett's Book of Virtues. That oh, was yeah. um, in a religious context, but it wasn't necessarily associated with my church tradition 
but it was almost like a slightly more secularized but accessible to Christians um, kind of vision of virtue, Aesop's fables, a lot of just um, readings for children about virtue formation, character formation. Um, And one of the things, and then this is a nuance that I don't know if it will make sense, but I'm going to throw it out to you to see what you think. I had this sense that character as a word or a concept was handled slightly different than virtue. So, so when I hear the word character in my upbringing, my shaping, my experience with it, I'm thinking of that focus on your choices, right? So Mm -hmm. your choices reveal your character, your, your, did you do this thing? You know, what did you not do? Those sort of things. Um, And it did have a slightly more negative overtone of, um, I I wouldn't say legalism, but there was a sense that it was a little more rigid. Right. When I hear the language of virtue, so so here's a funny thing. Mm -hmm. I I remember being exposed to like the book of virtues, but it was until I was an adult that I even understood that there were like cardinal virtues (laughs) or that there were lists of virtues. Um, and, And I was in church from childhood on. And so I don't remember the language of virtue within the church. I remember character. Same. That's right. You know, you're, you're right. That's such a helpful distinction because now that you're saying that, yeah, virtue is something I've read about as an adult. My parents, my um, church would not use that language. It was about character, definitely. And I almost had this sense, and, and again, this is just my anecdotal experience, but I almost had the sense that virtue had a slightly more um, Catholic kind of yes. expression. And so it was seen a little bit more medieval. It was a little more high church, a little more papist. Um, <laughs> and so character was uh, the language we were much more comfortable with. Um, and it could be defined clearly by your behavior and your choices. And I think that may be where some of the emphasis on how you live out your life and maybe the the kind of overtones of legalism that could potentially be associated with that. But virtue is much more mystical. Hmm. Um, in my understanding, it was this kind of thing that you become, you know, yes. but it, there wasn't a clear path to it necessarily. There's a very clear cat path to character. You do the right thing. Right. The path to virtue wasn't as clear to me. Hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned, because that's what I was thinking too. It almost seemed like a Catholic thing, virtue. And so that's probably why we didn't talk about it, because there was definitely a high suspicion in the in the tradition I grew up in towards anything Catholic. And so I think that's maybe why uh, virtue wasn't in our uh, vocabulary. Uh, it was more about character. And you're right. I think there were some legalistic... Um, overtones to what we meant by character. I think of the the popular quote, I don't know who originally said it, but character is what you do or what you are in the dark, basically when Mm -hmm. no one's looking, which isn't so bad. Um, And of course, I think a lot of the, uh, what we now call, of course, pejoratively, uh, the purity culture grew out of that emphasis on character. Um, And often the knock, and I think it's a good one on purity culture, is that it was really it was it was about sin management, what you don't do. There wasn't a greater theological framework maybe that was conveyed to young people about why they want to, uh, say, remain a virgin until they're married or um, abstain from certain behaviors. 
Um, and so maybe that's part of why some people are a little reluctant to talk about character and virtue uh, as important as they are, obviously. Yeah, I think you're so right about how that kind of happened, where we all knew that, you know, like purity is a good thing, like that's something Christians should move toward. But the way we were going about it, um, it did end up for some people being this kind of uh, behavior management or this performance mm-hmm. or this legalism. And and I actually encountered um, that kind of tension in writing All That's Good because one of the chapters is on purity. Um, the right. book is uh, rooted in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, where Paul gives this list of virtues. And one of the virtues is that we should seek whatever is pure. And mm. You know, there's all this baggage associated with that word. Um, And so as I was writing, I thought, okay, I've got to really get underneath where is this baggage coming from? What what are we dealing with? And And I think what we did is we miss purity as a virtue of wholeness. And, you know, as the scripture handles the concept of purity, it's that you're the same throughout, that your actions that you would do with your body would reflect your disposition toward God, that your heart would be aligned with, you would be a holistic person. And and that's not how we were talking about purity. I right. think you can derive sexual purity from that. Absolutely. And, and the Old Testament does, especially um, when God is um, confronting the, the priests of Israel with their impurity. And he is going to come refine them, and he's going to purify them with the refiner's fire. And and the thought is that there's something impure in their hearts and their motives that is exhibiting itself in their behavior. Hmm. And so with that focus of deeply rooted, okay, this is about your heart. This is about your body reflecting things that are deeper than just your actions. I, I think you kind of can bring together that focus on virtue and also have, you know, a focus on your behavior. But if it's only on the behavior, like you said, it just becomes behavior modification. Yeah. I I like that because I think it's so necessary to give the bigger picture of, of some of these virtues, character traits, whatever you want to call them um, from a biblical perspective, because what I see happening often, especially with the younger generation, they, certain words just become like they have so much baggage, like you said, that they get tossed out entirely. So, and I have to admit it, it affects me when I see the word purity, you know, uh, tossed around, I kind of go, oh, or, you know, because I'm importing this whole history of the of purity culture and some of the abuses and excesses of that. Um, but I really think these are important words and we need people to, to go back to scripture and give that bigger, fuller vision uh, of of what they mean and why they're important. Um, because I don't think we just want to give up on some of those words. Purity is a very biblical word. Uh, so I think it's important. So I'm grateful for people like you who are doing that. And thanks for sharing your insights into the topic of discernment. Well, we're going to wrap it up right there, uh, but we're not done talking about this. Join us next time for part two of this conversation. We're going to be talking about sin management versus character building. I'm going to ask Hannah about her favorite book, uh, one that's really made an impact on her life. And we're going to talk about a very silly video on monster energy drinks that I saw online. So uh, thanks for spending a little time with us. And until next time, keep reading.